Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm great. I've really been looking forward to our upcoming interview since I love to read about corporate scandals and I was not disappointed by reading this book. Neither was I. In today's episode of Investing by the Books, we have the great pleasure of speaking to Catherine S. Neal. Cathy has worked as an attorney and is since 2005 an associate professor of business ethics and business law at Northern Kentucky University. She is also the author of Taking Down the Lion, which we will discuss today. What is the book about? The book covers the story of the big American conglomerate, Tyco International, and its longtime CEO, Dennis Koslowski. In 2001, revenues amounted to $36 billion, and Business Week ranked Tyco the number one performing company in the S&P 500. Koslowski worked at Tyco for 27 years and held the helm of the company for about 10 years. And as CEO and chairman, he did hundreds of acquisitions and was greatly admired until he suddenly lost his job in 2002. Ultimately, he was convicted of grand larceny and other crimes that found him guilty of wrongfully taking 100 million from Tyco. This is indeed a fascinating story with the crucial lessons for both operators and investors. So how does the book fit with the quality rating here at Redeye? So this book centers on the people aspects of a business and as we will discuss, a company needs a competent management team but also a strong board and Tyco arguably lacked the latter according to the author. The company also tried to grow by making larger and larger acquisitions and having my serial acquirer hat on, that strategy seldom works. Professor Neil was granted unprecedented access to Dennis Koslowski, his papers, family, friends, attorneys and former Tyco colleagues as well as transcripts and evidence from two criminal trials. Taking Down the Lion was first published by Macmillan in 2014 and we are grateful to have its author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Catherine S. Neil. So hello Cathy and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Where are you today? I am in Highland Heights, Kentucky, which is a, um, a small college town just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati, Ohio. So I can see downtown Cincinnati from our, uh, our business here, our, our business building on campus here. And to begin, can you tell our listeners about your background and what led you into the world of business ethics and, and business law? I sure can. I, um, I am an attorney by profession. Uh, I also have an undergraduate degree in business uh, prior to going to law school. I worked in business at, at Procter & Gamble, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is uh, the global headquarters of Procter & Gamble are here in Cincinnati. Um, worked there prior to going to law school. Uh, went to law school, practice business and corporate and tax law um, at a, a firm in downtown Cincinnati. And then I um, completely changed my life and went into academia. I did that, uh, gosh, 20, 20 years ago. So I've been, I was at the University of Cincinnati for a few years, and then I've been at Northern Kentucky University in the uh, Hale College of Business since 2005. So 
getting to be a long time ago now. And you're the author of the book, uh, Taking Down the Lion, that we will discuss today. So in your own words, can you briefly introduce us to the story? Sure. Uh, this is the um, I, I, the only book, as far as, far as I know, that has ever been published um, about the Tyco International corporate scandal that um, rolled out in 2002. This is a case that received a, a lot of media attention. Um, I started teaching business ethics in 2005, the fall of 2005 here at uh, NKU. And in the, even in that first semester that I taught that class, you, I use a lot of case studies in there just as, you know, it's just a great way for students to um, really critically think about the decisions that are made, ethical decisions that are made in business. And I, I've talked about the Tyco case since that fall of 2005. And that was actually uh, the fall that um, Dennis Kozlowski, who was the CEO who was wrapped up in the scandal, along with the CFO of Tyco, they were sentenced in September of 2005. So I've been talking about it since the beginning. The odd thing about this case was, um, and what drew my interest, is that there are many differences in this case from the other huge corporate scandals that happened in the United States uh, about that same time. The Enron bankruptcy, WorldCom bankruptcy, uh, you know, there, there was a long list of scandals, Martha Stewart, um, HealthSouth. But there was something about the Tyco case, even as I talked about it in class with my students, that I never felt I fully understood. Uh, I, I would try to explain it. And I heard myself every semester saying, I'm not really exactly sure what happened here, because there are some big differences than the other big scandals. Uh, a big one was that Tyco never declared bankruptcy. They were financially sound throughout the scandal and after. Um, the crimes that were charged uh, among the corporate leaders at Tyco were not crimes um, that were investigated and prosecuted by the United States government, which is the norm for these big scandals. It would have been the SEC, an SEC investigation or U.S. attorneys. In this case, the, all of the criminal charges were brought by a local district attorney, which is highly unusual in a white collar financial crime case of this size or of any size. So, you know, that was um, a, a bit difficult for me to understand. Uh, and then looking at uh, so many of these financial um, scandals involve financial statements that are um, wildly misleading to anyone who would use them for information. But uh, in this case, that wasn't that wasn't true. There was never any material restatements uh, of the financial statements after, after the scandal broke. Uh, so it were those it was those differences that really kind of drew me into the case, mostly because I didn't understand it all. 
what was happening. <laughs> you know, like I would try to explain it to my students so that they could understand so that we could all learn something from the case. But it was um, it was very confusing to me. And we will get deep into the details. But first, to put things a bit in, in perspective, how big was Tyco at its peak? And can you compare the company in terms of size and influence to a company today? I can. You know, when Dennis Kozlowski started working at Tyco, he started there in 1971. And it was a relatively small company based in New Hampshire um, with annual revenue of about $20 million dollars. By 2001, which was the last year before the scandal, uh, their annual revenue was $40 billion. Um, they, were, they were at that time one of the 50 largest companies in the world uh, by market cap, I think, and, um, and annual revenue. They ha- were making $150 million a day in sales. So they were quite substantial. Uh, if I think about companies now, I mean, adjusting for you know, the 20 years since this happened, you know, this would be on the level size wise of annual revenue of a company like P&G or Intel or uh, MetLife, e- even Walt Disney, you know, so really large companies. Interestingly, though, Tyco has never really been a household name. Even even at its peak, I don't think that um, most people knew Tyco like all of the other big companies at that time. Um, Tyco was a conglomerate of of a lot of really not glamorous businesses. You know, there there wasn't anything spe- very specifically interesting to to most people. Uh, pipes and valves, electronics, um, medical devices, things like that. the The big brand that most people would have heard of was ADT Security, which in the United States is is a common. Lots of like homes and businesses have ADT Security signs on their property. Um, that's a well-known um, brand here and, and Tyco acquired ADT security at one point. But uh, for the most part, um, most people did not know the name of Tyco very well. In the book, you compare them at, at some points with the General Electric. Yes, and, and not just me, there were, uh, there were many people at the time who were, who were watching what Tyco was doing and thought that they were modeling the company after GE, the types of acquisitions that they made, the types of businesses that they became interested in. So yeah, that was a, that was a common comparison at the time. And as mentioned, Dennis Koslowski is the lion uh, in the book uh, title and the main character of, of the story. Can you tell us a bit more about him? I can. Um, he is an incredibly interesting person, as you might imagine, you know, someone who, who reaches the the heights in his career that he did. And then, and then uh, the lows as well. He grew up um, very modestly in New Jersey, um, probably what would be considered a lower middle-class family did not come from wealth, started working at a very young age uh, and worked all through school, all through paid his, 
paid his own way through college. Um, and everyone I talked to about him always described him as the hardest working person they knew. Yeah. So he, he's a, a very hardworking, um, ambitious, um, very smart person who, um, once he got into his career at Tyco, uh, was known for an aggressive growth mentality. He really just focused on growing the company. And, um, that took him from, he started at Tyco as an internal auditor. So a low level position, um, and through his, his own work and, um, success in the company, uh, progressed all the way to CEO. We'll talk uh, more about him and what we can learn from how he acted in the company. But uh, we're also curious to know a bit more about how it was when you wrote the book. Why did you do it and, and how was it to, to write it? Well, I, as I mentioned earlier, I, I was just confused and curious about what really happened in this scandal. And um, in when looking back, what was a completely random act on my part, and I'm sure I was sitting in my office, I'm sure I had a long list of work to do, but instead of doing the work, I was thinking about this case and wondering um, how I could better understand it, where I could get more information. And I thought, oh, well, Dennis Kozlowski, he would know, he, you know, he would know the most. And I knew he was still in prison at that time. This was in 2011, so 12 years ago, about this time of year. Um, so I looked online to see where he, which prison he was housed in, in New York State, and got an address. And I wrote a, a brief letter explaining who I was and, and asking if he would be willing to answer some questions for me, just so I could better understand the case, the company, his role, um, so that I could explain it in my classes. So I sent this letter and um, honestly didn't think much else about it. I didn't invest much time in it and sent it out. And a few weeks later, I walked into my department office and uh, the administrative assistant said, uh, hey, you've got a letter from a prison in your mailbox. And, and it was a handwritten one page letter uh, from him um, saying he would be happy to answer any questions that I had about the company and that he would have to do it just through handwritten letters because that's all he had access to in prison. And so that started a series of me writing, sending him questions and him sending handwritten responses to me um, just answering my questions about what happened. Of course, that was uh, a lot for him to have to write out a whole history of the company with just to hand write it. So at some point months into that, um, and, and it was a lengthy process as, as uh, correspondence goes in and out of a prison, it's, it takes a long time because they read everything going in and they read everything going out. And, you know, so it was a, a lengthy process. So months into this, he, um, suggested that if I would be willing to travel, um, we could cover a lot more ground if we met in person. Um, so of course, 
you know, in my position as a, a, as a professor, it's just a really rare opportunity when you would get to meet someone that you've talked about in class for, for years and, and, and have access to them. So I said, yes, of course. And even though I'm an attorney, I, I have never been anywhere near, near a, a jail or a, a prison of any kind. So it was a, that the experience of going into a maximum security prison was, uh, was something. And so I did go and, and I was able to meet with him on visitors days, um, which I believe were 8 AM to 3 PM where I would, we would just sit at a table in a visitor's room and I could ask him questions and he would, um, and answer my questions. Uh, the difficult part of that arrangement was I wasn't allowed to take in any notes or pen or paper or anything to, to write anything down. So I had to try to remember, you know, and I, I, you could imagine seven hours of uninterrupted conversation. You can cover a, a lot of material. So as soon as I would get to my car, I had a little digital recorder and I would try to <laughs> recall everything that we talked about for, for seven hours. Um, but I then started really understanding the case and, uh, and, and as it rolled out, it was just so very different than everything I had ever read about the case, even things that are in textbooks in, in, the, in the field of business ethics, the information in those textbooks was just completely different than, than the things he was telling me. Um, so, um, those conversations, uh, ultimately it was, uh, Dennis who suggested or asked if I might be interested in writing a book, um, because he, he had been approached by people uh, prior to me talking to him about, about a book. Um, but he had become, uh, distrustful. Most of those people, maybe all of them were from the media journalists of some type. And he had become very distrustful of journalists. If you've read any of the coverage of him and the case, you could understand why he might not be interested in uh, in a journalist or or, or co cooperating with a journalist to write this story. So, um, you know, so we talked about that, and I said, "Yeah, I might be interested." You know, my my whole objective with the book was for it to be accurate. You know, that was the, you know, uh, the whole point for me was to produce the accurate telling of what happened in this scandal. Um, I was fortunate that that he did give me access to um, his attorneys and he had a lot of attorneys over those years who had um, corporate documents from those years. And when I say corporate documents, I mean tens of thousands of corporate documents. Um, and the transcripts and evidence from two lengthy criminal trials. So those were things that, you know, not to say that I distrusted what he was telling me, but of course I wanted to be able to um, have other sources of information um, as I put the book together and it was, it was incredibly helpful, but it also incredibly time consuming to sift through, you know, thousands of, of corporate documents to make sure. Um, so I could see what really happened, but that's where, you know, that's where the story got really interesting for me because, you know, I could read um, reporting in 
what I had always considered to be highly reliable, respected sources in the media about this case. And then I would be looking at documents and evidence in a trial that completely contradict the things in those articles. And that was, you know, uh, unexpected for me. It must have been a very special situation being this uh, business ethics professor and even in law and then on the other hand have such a close contact with him, the, the, the convicted person. Yeah, it it was uh, it was a you know an interesting opportunity to you know to t- to talk about someone you know we all of us and who do what I do you know you talk about different people in classes but you don't really know those people you know you don't really ever get a chance to to uh, interact with those people so it was a it was a great opportunity for me and then ultimately um, my students who get you know kind of a firsthand view also. But it must be easy to get emotional in this kind of and very engaged in this kind of story, I can imagine. How did you stay objective besides reading all those documents? Well, yeah, that was the, you know, fortunately, he never pressured me to twist the story or to, you know, well, in fact, he never saw anything that was written until it had already gone to the publisher. So he didn't have any... um any influence over what I wrote or how I wrote it or how I, uh, my opinion about it. Um, as I said, my main goal was to be accurate. That was, you know, and that I, you know, I, I know looking at the book, even now, as I go back and look at it, you know, I, I write like a, a lawyer, I write like an attorney, I footnote everything. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was incredibly, Uh, conscientious about being accurate. I know he's very controversial. I know that um, if it was, if I, if I didn't have sources for what I included in the book, that it would be criticized or even criticized by myself. So, uh, you know, I really never felt um, that really wasn't too difficult. Because again, my my goal throughout was to be accurate. You know, my editor she kept you know, she was like, "You don't want all these footnotes," and it's like, "But I do, <laughs> I do, I do want all the footnotes because that's w- what I'm doing. I, I'm I'm telling this story from the facts, from the sources, the documents that exist. You know, so I, that's why there are, you know there are hundreds and hundreds of footnotes in the book at the back of the book." And I, f- I found it really interesting to read about all the events. I mean, from uh, from Dennis Koslovsky and uh, Mark Swartz, the the CFO, um, being uh, convicted of this of this crime, and uh, about I mean why they they were convicted. Maybe you can give us some more background on that. What what actually happened, and uh, I mean how how were the proceedings with with them getting sentenced, and how long were they in prison, and so on. Most significant crimes. Uh, that they were charged with were, were grand larceny. That was stealing from the company. And that theft, um, what the prosecutor said, was um, in the form of four very large bonuses. And here's what's interesting. Um, those bonuses were paid based on a written pay for performance compensation plan 
you know, it, it wasn't just some numbers that were pulled out of the air. There was a written compensation plan, which, by the way, was in place prior to Dennis Kozlowski becoming CEO. So it's not a, a compensation policy that he came up with or suggested or, or it was already there. The big difference was the company had grown so significantly. So what used to be relatively small bonuses based on the mathematical calculation included in that compensation plan, you know, you start adding several zeros after those numbers and um, those become what many people, including myself, would consider ridiculously large bonuses. You know, I mean, and, and that's, you know, one of my biggest criticisms here was a, a lack of oversight by everyone. I mean, that, you know, it, 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 at some point, that policy should have been reviewed to see if it's still made sense for the company. You know, it, it, is that reasonable? Is that, you know, but it, it just never was. Um, so the, there are these four huge bonuses based on the profitability of four huge transactions. Um, and it wasn't just Kozlowski and Swartz who got bonuses. There were other people involved in those transactions who received bonuses at the same time. Of course, they weren't as large as Kozlowski and Swartz bonuses. But um, so they got these four big bonuses. The problem was um, when there was no clear record keeping in whether the board knew about the bonuses, when they knew about the bonuses, were the bonuses uh, paid at the right time? You know, it was done, um, they were done in an undocumented manner, even though, and I, che I checked this myself, the mathematical calculation of the amounts was correct according to the compensation policy. But the questions then started coming up. Well, did they get them too early or did the, the board, um, there were two criminal trials for Kozlowski and Swartz were tried together. The first criminal trial lasted six months. It was declared a mistrial while the jury was deliberating. So there was a second trial that lasted five months and it was at the conclusion of that trial that they were both convicted. Um, during those trials, the directors, some of the directors from Tyco testified that either they didn't remember, didn't recall if they knew about those bonus payments or that they testified that they weren't told about them. Now, you know, there is even a question in my mind. Um, there was nothing in the compensation policy that required board approval before those payments were made. I, I don't, you know, so I'm not even sure why we, why the focus was kind of on whether the board approved them because if they had not paid them, then they're in violation of, you know, their own, their own compensation policies. Okay. So they paid the bonuses, but Tyco, not unlike other large corporations like a GE or, or other corporations at the time used to, um, regularly 
loan money to their key executives, key employees. They'd have loan programs and, and Tyco did, had a couple of loan programs. Um, Tyco had a what was called a key employee loan program where they would loan, again, huge amounts of money to key employees to prevent them from selling Tyco stock that was that was vested when when taxes were due on that stock. You know, so they, they wanted to encourage these uh, key folks to hang on to their Tyco stock. So instead of them selling the stock to take care of the tax bill, they'd say, don't do that. We'll loan you $20 million instead and you can pay your taxes. You know, so all of these, including Kozlowski and Swartz, have these huge loans due to Tyco. So for the bonuses, some of them weren't paid just as, you know, a cash bonus to Kozlowski or Swartz. They were used to pay off the loan that they owed the company. Mistakenly, they often refer to this as loan forgiveness. Well, it wasn't really forgiveness because they earned the bonus and then they used it to pay off the loan, but they called it loan forgiveness. And when that starts getting reported, it's reported as, well, they're just, they're borrowing money and then the company's forgiving it, you know, and these were huge, $25 million, $30 million, you know, so it was a lot of money flying around and it was done um, haphazardly, you know, that, that was the, you know, if I had to point to the number one problem, it was um, for a huge corporation they ran it like a mom and pop shop, very informally, didn't recognize corporate formalities, didn't keep good records, um, which, you know, ended up coming back to hurt, you know, several of those people very much. Yeah. Charlie Munger, one of our idols, has said that uh, the world is not driven by greed, but by envy. And uh, I think you describe one incident in that, though, where the company paid one of the board members a large fee for having helped matchmaking a large acquisition. And the other board members got upset, driven by this envy. So can you please tell us this story? Yes. Um, you know, we, we spoke earlier about how um, it looked like Tyco was modeling itself after a GE and one thing that GE had at the time was GE Capital. So they had their own financial arm of the company. So Tyco decided they wanted to um, to acquire a, a financial arm as well. So they did. And um, that the initial conversations between that company and Tyco were facilitated by one of the Tyco board members. You know, and, and and quite honestly, it wasn't it wasn't like he invested a lot of time or work, but but it was his relationships that facilitated um, that acquisition ultimately. And Kozlowski agreed to give him a twenty million dollar finder's fee. Now, if you go back and look, and, and this is a, a big problem, um, almost every member of the board of directors of Tyco over those years had some type of additional relationship with the company. 
They were leasing jets to the company. They were buying assets or selling assets to the company. So this certainly wasn't the only the only board member who was receiving additional compensation over and above board fees, but it was the amount. And you're exactly right. It was the, it wasn't that they thought that was wrong. It was, where's mine? You know, like, why is he getting $20 million and where's my $20 million? So you're right. That's exactly what it was. And that set off this huge string of events you know, the anger. Well, you know, that co- the company had run very smoothly for 10 years. Kozlowski was CEO for 10 years. Everyone was happy. Investors were happy. Um, employees were happy. The board was happy. You know, so it, and the longer that everyone was pleased with the performance, the less hands-on everyone was. The board just gave Kozlowski freedom to do whatever he wanted with with little or no oversight. Um, they're all making money is <clears throat> from their board fees, but more importantly from the other relationships they have with the company. Then in two thousand one, uh, <clears throat> there was a recession in the United States, so it was the first time really that they you know they had benefited from the boom market of the nineties. So you know. Um, it was the first time that the stock price dropped a little. Um, then we had the terrorist attacks in September of 2001 and the market crashed. Um, and that was the first time that the board started questioning um, Kozlowski at all, started expressing any unhappiness. And then this big finder's fees to one of the uh, directors really set them off. You know, they were already getting pressure and feeling unhappy. And then when they found out about that, then it, it set off this whole thing. Then it, it, this is just a series of unfortunate events. If you look at it from Kozlowski's perspective, then in June of 2002, so this is following up They're They're already unhappy with the, with the $20 million payment. They're trying to get him to pay it back. He's refusing to pay it back. Um, Kozlowski is charged with sales tax evasion, completely unrelated to Tyco. This is a personal purchase of art through a through a art dealer. Um, and there just happened to be at that time in Manhattan, in New York City, um, the district attorney was cracking down on individuals wealthy individuals who were buying expensive things outside of the city and transporting them into the city. It Those things are subject to an 8% use tax in New York City. So that, you know, that's a lot of revenue for, for the city. So, and, and so Kozlowski's art purchase got caught up in that just, you know, unrelated and coincidentally. Um, and ultimately those charges were dropped because in fact, there's not even a crime to charge him with. The crime is the dealer supposed to collect that, not, not the customer. But, um, but the damage was already done because the minute he reported to the board that he was being charged with the sales tax evasion uh, charges, the board fired him immediately over the phone. Not, they didn't even meet with him, fired him over the phone. And, and, I believe, fully believe, if that had happened a, a year earlier, 
they would not have fired him. They would have let it play out. They would have seen, you know, wait and see what happens. You know, it's unrelated to his his leadership of Taco, but they were already unhappy. So it was the perfect excuse for them to fire him. Now, here's where something really odd came into play. A year earlier, beginning of 2001, the Tyco board became concerned because uh, Dennis Koslowski had never signed an employment contract with Tyco. He was at will. He could go whenever. Um, and he was being recruited by a number of companies, aggressively so. You know, he had, he had achieved great success. Tyco had grown exponentially. Uh, you know, under his leadership as CEO, they had 40 consecutive quarters where they exceeded um, earnings goals. So, you know, so he, he's racking up quite a, an attractive record for himself. So in order to provide assurances to Tyco shareholders, they wanted to, wanted him to sign an employment contract, just an assurance that he's going to stay on. So, um, in 2001, early 2001, he called, he signed what they called a retention agreement that again, has a, a mathematical calculation of, um, you know, if you stay eight more years, here's the amount we'll pay you at the end of it. And it was based, it would be based on his highest year of earnings. That's, you know, that's what you plug into this calculation. And, it, and at that point, his highest year of earnings, I think had been about $150 million, his, his compensation. So his highest year of compensation. So based on that, what was already his um, largest year of compensation, that payout was going to be just under a half a billion dollars. So it was this huge, you know, payout at the end of the term. In addition, if they fired him before the end of that term, let's say, you know, three years into it, they decided they, they didn't want him to continue. Uh, they still had to pay him out, the big golden parachute. So almost a half a billion dollars. In that agreement, and again, I've, I, I have the agreement, I've read the agreement. Um, it's the only reason that they didn't have to pay him that huge amount of money was if he was fired for cause. And for cause was very narrowly defined as he was convicted of a felony that was injurious to the company. So they fired him because of the sales tax charges, which are not related to the company and were ultimately dropped. So then this became uh, an issue of compensation. You know, he believed that he was due that compensation and the board did not want to pay him that compensation. Um, and that's where everything just kind of exploded. They brought in an independent investigator in, an, in a very short amount of time, um, fed evidence to the Manhattan district attorney and, um, and they were charged with these serious felonies. Um, I, you know, it was just a convergence of 
<laughs> really bad timing. You know, they're unhappy. They were really unhappy about that $20 million payment. Companies not doing particularly well. The acquisition of that financial arm of the company was failing. They were going to have to get rid of that. Um, economies doing poorly. Um, it, you know, so that it was just, and then you've got Enron, WorldCom, all the other big scandals that are rolling out here in the United States at the time. And it was a really good time to hate corporate executives, especially highly paid corporate executives. And for an elected prosecutor like the Manhattan District Attorney, it was it certainly would be attractive to to prosecute some of these um people who were at the time not well liked at all. So it was just really uh really bad timing. And this is where, you know, we talked about, you know, the poor record keeping and the and the failure to observe uh corporate formalities and lack of oversight by the board. That's where this really came back to hurt Kozlowski and Swartz and and, and the general counsel was also charged. Um you know, when you don't have clear records of what happened and, and who did what and what was approved and wasn't approved and 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 no oversight, um, that's where that became a, a huge problem. Because when Kozlowski and Swartz needed those records, they did not exist. And speaking about those uh, records, you described Dennis as this workaholic. He was super focused on on the big picture, and he was a visionary, and but also terrible at at the everyday tasks. And in the book, you you write that he his electricity was turned off because he didn't ha- take the time to pay his bill, for example, and that led to a person in the Tyco Treasury taking care of all his personal finances. And then when he suddenly got fired, as you mentioned, he he even had to call this person to ask for his social security number. I I, f- I find that fascinating for a uh, one of the biggest companies. Uh, correct. I, I also that was one of the the most interesting just things about him personally. You know, well, <laughs> he and I have had this this conversation because as I found out that this happened, like, what were you thinking? That's you know, for someone who is incredibly uh, talented and smart <laughs> to to allow someone in the company in the company to manage all of your personal finances. It's like, why, why you were making $150 million a year, hire yourself a wealth manager, hire some, you know, hire someone outside the company, you know, and in fact, the, the people in this, they created this, what they called the executive treasury department. And they created it for this purpose. There were three people who worked there. So three Tyco employees who managed the personal finances of the CEO and CFO. According to Kozlowski, this was Mark Schwartz, the CFO's idea. That that was, it was his idea. You know, I'm not sure how it came about, but, um, but you know, and honestly, these three employees had no background in managing wealth, certainly not, not even managing normal finances, you know? So it's like, why would you, and why would you even want someone in the company to know all your personal business? You know, I, I, I can't even imagine in, 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 in talking about, you know, I talked about earlier, you know, how some of the, the bonuses were used to pay off loans. This is part of the problem. Um, so 
the way that this was handled, I've seen the documents and, and these are literally handwritten ledgers of paying their personal bills, you know? Um, so here's what would happen. Let's say that Kozlowski was due um, some, some big chunk of, of stock vests and he owes taxes on them on a certain date. And the policy of the company was you could borrow up to 50% of the value of the stock that was vesting. So let's say $50 million of stock is vesting on a particular date. You could borrow $25 million, zero interest from the company. The way that would happen in practice was they, the people in this executive treasury department would prepare a promissory note for $25 million, an IOU basically, and stamp Kozlowski's signature on it. That was the documentation for this. But the way that they did this, it's not like they took the $25 million and wired it into some account somewhere or, you know, Instead, they used it like a revolving line of credit. So they would be like, okay, Dennis has $25 million. Then all of his personal bills and expenses would run through that. So if he wanted to buy jewelry for his daughters, he would have the jeweler send the bill to Tyco and Tyco would pay that amount, whatever it was. If he bought a boat, the marina would send the bill to Tyco and Tyco would pay that amount. You know, anything, anything from $300 to mow his lawn to a $16 million yacht would run through that account. Now, when you look at it, it the reality is he always paid back the full amount of the loan. So he borrowed $25 million and he paid back $25 million within the time frame that it was required. But when you look at it, it looks like Tycho's paying his personal expenses. Now, from an ethics point of view, you also have to ask the question, like, are you being a good steward of company assets? Is this really the way that Tycho assets should be used? Now, you could ask Dennis Kozlowski and he would say, we wanted to free ourselves up to grow this company. And we were very successfully. So this is a small expense, a small perk for us so that we can focus on the next acquisition or, you know, travel whenever we need to travel. And we don't have to worry about these little details of daily life that that would be his. And, you know, and I, and I will say you can go back and look at other corporate executives at the time. Jack Welsh is one of them at, at GE um, who had similar perks. You know, and, and it just, uh, I don't know if it was just the time we thought that was acceptable then, um, but it was just a really, really, really bad idea. And I can't, I mean, I just put myself in that situation. Well, number one, I can't imagine making $150 million a year, but if I did, I can't imagine wanting someone in the company managing that for me or having access to everything I, everything I buy or want to buy or want to do, I, I think it was just such an odd decision for him. Um, but again, he, he did not like to deal with those things in his life. He wanted to, um, 
delegate that. And he did. I mean, that he, he did. And it came back to, to hurt him severely. He must have felt that this was his uh, his company and his family, and he could never imagine that something like this would happen. That he would be that is correct. You exactly, you're exactly right. You know, um, I think one of the 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 biggest issues here is um, he did think of this as his company. You know, he really I, and I don't mean that in a negative way, in that he was trying to take things or you, you know, he really invested his whole life in this company in growing this company and uh, nurturing this company. Um, but he never drew the line uh, with which you must do when it is a publicly traded corporation. You know, I mean that, that um, you know, the investors did benefit from his dedication. However, you know, he had duties um that he just didn't like to observe because, you know, he, he did think of it as his company. Uh, I think in, in his mind, there was no separation between him and the company. You know, something in his name could be in the company's name or something in the company's name could be in his name. And it was all the same to him, you know. And we spoke about Koslovsky as the CEO and then we talked about the board, but he was actually the chairman of the company as well. That is correct. Which yeah. is not the case in Sweden where we are based. This would not happen. But in, in the US it was quite common then. And now the trend has been go, going that you are splitting up the roles. But That is correct. You know, that's something I talked, I touched on briefly in the book, I think. Um, and, and actually, since I knew I was going to talk to you, I went and looked to see what, what the trend was now for um, splitting those roles. It is, it, since... Well, since he became CEO, um, 1992, right, it, it was m- significantly more than half of companies in the S and P 500 um, had the same individual as chair and CEO. Ten years later, the trend was away from that about about half, and now it's it's less than half here in the United States. However, from two 2021 to 2022, it's edging back up. I just looked at the the re- most recent data this morning. Um, so it's it's about 47 percent in 2022, where the same person serves as CEO and chair. Um, my, my personal take on that, having examined so many companies that have issues, um, I think it's a bad idea. I think that. Even from the individual's perspective, um, to have someone else as part of the process, the oversight that, you know, yet Kozlowski was just in general, very big on um, moving quickly, didn't like meetings, didn't like having to take minutes, didn't like formalities. You know, if he could make a decision talking to someone in the hallway, and I'm, I, and I'm talking big decisions, he would rather do that. It, it's just was it's his style, which also kind of aligns with that. I don't like to deal with my personal bills and things like that. Um, so he believed he needed to be both chair and CEO so that the company could move quickly when they wanted to. He can make a decision quickly. 
Um, it, they could be efficient and effective. Uh, when he became CEO initially for the first six months, there was a different person uh, as the chair of the board. And it was actually the, the immediately prior CEO, which was, you know, there was a lot of tension there uh, between the two of them. Um, and then six months after six months, the board decided that that Kozlowski should be both the CEO and the chair. Um, of course, he he was very happy about that decision, felt like um, he felt like the company needed a single vision. You know, that that his style and his ideas um, did not align with the chairs. And so he, you know, of course, it, it he felt it would be easier for him. Plus, in this case, not only, you know, not having a chairperson other than yourself, um, the rest of the board was really hands off, you know, so they really let him uh, do what he wanted. And the longer he was in that role, the more that was true. So not only did he not have another person as the chair, um, he had a, a really hands-off board altogether. So, um, yeah, that's a that's tough. I, I'm I'm surprised that it hasn't come up here more. Where you would, and, and looking back, you know, there are so many of these things. Looking back, you know, I've said to him, you know, if you'd have had someone else chairing the board beside you, maybe this all wouldn't have fallen on you. You know, there it, it, you were easy target at that point because it's all it's all you. If there had been somebody else in that in the decision making process and in the governance and the oversight, you know, would not have been as easy for it all to land on you. And maybe he needed someone to tell him no. You know, maybe he well, not maybe. He certainly did, you know, like he did, he needed someone um, with a different management style to temper, you know, the things that ultimately um, became problematic for him. So, you know, while it in the short term, it feels good to have um, less hurdles in the long term, it could be quite an issue splitting the responsibilities and recording every decision are clearly two great lessons from this story yes 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 and in in the book you also write and as we touched upon earlier how the media attacked koslovsky and among many things they called him greedy a pig a thief and um, they played a really big role in in this story what's your what's your view on that well as i first uh, became aware of the Tycho scandal. Those are all the things I saw and heard and read, you know. Um, the media likes sensationalism. You know, those things are easy to understand and draw attention. If you look at... Um, any articles written about him, and there there's still many written regularly, even today, they cannot mention his name without talking about the $6,000 shower curtain and the big birthday party that he threw for his wife at the time. Um, 
though neither of those two issues were were part of the charges that for which he was convicted or but their sensational facts that 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 the media always grasps onto um it, which you know i i get it i get how the media needs viewers and readers and you know those things bring people's attention to the story um what i found more disturbing with the media once i really started diving into the case and had access to um the actual corporate documents evidence presented at trial uh you know testimony under oath was how completely inaccurate much of the reporting was um th that i did not expect you know i have read financial media newspapers wall street journal you know financial times uh, for decades and um i always placed the highest regard for um truth and accuracy and those you know in those types of sources now right now there's so much information available um being able to weigh evaluate how much of it is accurate i mean you know that's that's tough for all of us especially with social media and and so many sources of news but there are still you know those those old sources that you like to think you can believe uh, when they put something in their um outlet but i found just factually inaccurate story just just factually inaccurate um even even in textbooks that i use it's just like that's not true like i'm i'm actually holding the document the evidence presented in trial i'm i'm holding it in my hand and that's not correct you know those things did surprise me um i also think that he really just timing wise it just hit the peak of um public's disgust with corporate leadership you know with with all of the big scandals um you know tens of thousands that's an underestimate of of people lost significant amounts of money in these scandals not tyco necessarily but you know enron and worldcom and, and some of the others um and so it was an easy time to create the bad guy in the media and, and he it was easy to do that to him he had made a lot of money one of the highest paid if not the highest paid ceo during those years um he spent a lot of money very publicly which makes him easy to target um it, his trial took place at the height of you know these scandals um i think the martha stewart trial was happening very close time wise to his and she, and she had the same issue with a lot of a lot of uh negative media coverage so it was uh i mean i think it was it was tough for him still still so much negative um coverage of him in the media um but it um you know i i guess the most disturbing thing for me 
is a lack of accurate information. Again, I always go back. The lawyer in me is always looking for people to be accurate, you know. And you know, if we look at this from investors' point of view, it's like where do you get where do you get good information? You know, we have to depend on the media for um, as a watchdog. Certainly, we want the the media to to dive into these stories and to you know report things that seem off. And you know, but but if but if it's not done accurately, that doesn't help either. You know, we know that some some bad reporting can destroy careers and it can uh, certainly have an impact on stock value, accurate or not. You know, so I think that it the the media has a, a huge responsibility. You know, I know I, I always feel like I'm always swaying away from business ethics into uh, journalistic ethics, you know, it's like, come on, you got, you got to, you got to get it right. You know, you have a lot of power, um, both for positively and negatively. Niklas and I prefer books to uh, other type of uh, media and news articles and so on. It's usually Agreed. of higher quality, but of course you need to be critical to, to the facts there as well. But uh, as we mentioned, I mean, the... The company numbers, that's another source of information that we really need to trust. And uh, when it comes to these kind of of situations that we have been through here, I mean, we, we put a lot of trust in the people, the operators, and of course, also the auditors, that they ensure that the numbers are correct. And as shareholders, it's hard to get the kind of information that, that you have uh, digged up in the Koslovsky case. I mean, these kind of corporate governance troubles uh, inside the company. But besides what we have talked about so far, can you mention a few other red flags that you think investors should look out for when it comes to, to corporate governance? Well, I can. I, I don't know that um, in Tyco that you would have seen it. You know, I, they had PwC was their auditor, you know, that uh, that I don't know that you get any more respected auditor than that. Um and they certainly didn't report any issues with their financial reporting. So um, red flags, when I think about as a whole, all the companies that have gotten tied up in uh, financial fraud, uh, one thing that always sticks out to me is it, if you don't, if, if you look at the financial statements and you don't understand how they're making their money or how they're reporting it. And that, and, you know, Enron's the big example of that, uh, you know, it's like, I, I still can, I can still read all I've read about Enron for decades at this point. And, and I read some of it and I still don't understand like what's the revenue, what's the source of revenue. You know, I think if something is, um, if you can generally look at a financial statement and know what it means and where the numbers come from, and you look at a company's financial statements and you and you can't make sense of it, I think that's a big red flag. You know, uh, I think that's, uh, and Enron's certainly not the only company to do that. You know, if you if your financial statements just leave users uh, confused, that's a red flag. Um, One thing I was thinking about was, uh, you mentioned, for example, the, the fee that uh, Koslovsky paid to the director, which was actually in the proxy statement. Yes. So, I mean, one one thinking I had was that, I mean, you need to read the proxy because even though that, that's not a criminal act or, I mean, <laughs> I still find it like... Eyebrows, right? it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yes. It's, it's, yeah. it's too much money that's just thrown away 
from the company, I think. So, I mean, for yeah. me, that was a red flag, even though it's not illegal, so to speak. Agree. Yes. It was not that big of a sum when you compared it in, in the book to how much they paid to the other investment bankers. I think it was Goldman and Lehman. I mean, right. it was a very small amount, but it still raises some eyebrows and you can question the company, of course. Well, well, and certainly because the person receiving it sits on the board of directors, you know, like that's, a, exactly. you know, that is different than paying the other investment bankers. Yes. And that and that would be that was their argument. That's Kozlowski's argument um, is that that is a small fee in based on the size of the transaction. That was the you know, that that's the counter argument there. But um, yes, things like that, things like, you know, but, but you're right in the average investor just doesn't have access to that kind of information. I didn't have access to it until I started writing a book after there were criminal trials, when evidence is produced in trials, you know, like a lot of that information is just never going to be available until somebody's in trouble. And that's, you know, that's too late because gosh, what 80% of the information in the book is, is information I only had access to because there were criminal trials. Beyond that, no one would have ever gathered up that information or um, certainly I would have never had access to it or an investor would never have had access to it. But you're right. Read the details. You know, and we even count on people to do that too. You know, we count on an analyst to know that and, and know that, but you know, that there should be, Yes, red flags. Somebody's eyebrows should be raising. I, you know, that doesn't seem seem right to me. I mean, um, for, for me, I can also say that. I mean, I'm a, an equity analyst and and uh, a private investor. And for me, it's it's more or less that I I try to avoid investing in large companies because it's it's messy. I mean, it's so much material that you need to to read and understand. And yeah, it's it's, it's so much work. So it's uh, it's often easier in in smaller companies which have much more simple financial statements and and annual reports are, are much shorter and so on. Also easier to get access to management if you have questions. And you know, in the bigger the company, the more complex everything is, and the easier to hide things. You know, like you can mask a lot of information just because of the sheer volume of it. You know, and I think that is a commonality among uh, big corporations that have had problems is that you can, you know, you just mask it with volume. Yeah. And, and digging out the little details. Right. You talk about that $20 million payment. Well, is it, that's one tiny little line buried amongst, you know, thousands of pages of information. And who's got the time to sift through it that thoroughly? You know, that's that's a problem. Um, and that's also the issue, you know, when uh, when this ultimately went to trial, one of the, the, the big I thought one of the big the strongest points uh, in favor of the defendants was. None of this was hidden. Everything that you're using against me was reported in the books and records of the company, audited give you know signed off on you know so we weren't you know we weren't hiding anything we weren't trying to secretly take bonuses they're 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 right there in the financial reports um in fact 
the the bonuses were you know the provide a management representation letter annually to to PwC, and they specifically said be sure to you know here are the bonuses we received. So they're even pointing them out to the auditors. You know that's um, and again it, it just makes you wonder like are even the auditors paying enough attention to the to because there's so much, you know, there's there's so much there. Some, something I which you mentioned now, and I also thought about it when when I when I read the book is that Tyco grew very fast, and uh, this can be challenging in terms of building up bureaucracy and, and so on. And, and as you said, Koslovsky was not a fan of bureaucracy. He wanted like to make really quick decisions and and uh, on the fly and and. I mean, as an investor, it's. T- I mean, you typically want to have companies that stay really. I mean, agile, even when they grow grow big. But, but maybe. I mean, if you can describe from an ethical perspective, what what do you think are the most Im- important aspects for companies to ensure when they scale up like this? The top of my list, just based on uh, this close look at Tyco uh, in their rapid growth. One thing I know that they could have done better, um, that could have prevented all of the problems, is that they didn't hire the right people to manage the growth. Everyone who worked there, you know, and Kozlowski was very proud of this, that in Tyco corporate operations, the same people worked there the entire time he was CEO. Nobody left at all. And I mean, I get that. I get where you would think that's a great thing because you've you've provided a a, a place where people want to work and, and spend their careers. But it also raises the issue that none of those people had any experience running a company that large, including Kozlowski and Swartz. They had n- no experience running a company that large. And I think that is a, a big reason for uh, the sloppiness, the failure to um, recognize corporate formalities, to comply with those. I think if they had hired uh, individuals who had experience at types of companies that were the size that Keiko had grown to, they would immediately come in and say, whoa, 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 this is a mess. We need to tighten up. We need to, you know, here are the things that need to be done. Um, And that just never happened. You know, it was the same people who um, who had been there all along, um, none of whom had experience um, running a company that large or that complex. So I, I, that's at the top of my list. I think making sure that you've got the right people in place. Uh, and another issue um, was um, I mentioned like all of the same people stayed for all of those years. Um, I believe just as a general statement that um, almost everyone in Tyco corporate operations was vastly overpaid. <laughs> I think that that, you know, and that, and do I think that's just uh, Kozlowski's style and wanting to include everyone in this success, but it also, you know, as a, someone who teaches business ethics, it also makes you think, well, were you paying people, to do things that maybe they wouldn't have done otherwise, you know, like, or or to not say something or to not challenge things. You know, I think there's a danger with overpaying 
people. And I'm not saying that anyone here in particular, uh, you know, I never found any evidence of anyone doing anything wrong because of their pay. But I certainly believe that the the level of pay explains why no one left. Because there's there's no, like just as an example, the head of human resources made over six million dollars a year for multiple years. I just think that's off the charts a high pay for a head of human resources. I don't think that person could leave Tyco and replace that salary. You know, so I, I look at that and, and you know, un unfortunately for Kozlowski, she she would have been the person who should have taken the bonuses to the board and didn't do it. So, you know, Kozlowski is a very big uh, pay for performance manager. That's how he believes uh, people are motivated. You know, you want to, they have the opportunity to um, make more money, the better their performance, the better the company performs. And he um, he lived by that, not just for himself, but for uh, all the people at Tyco. So uh, with the with the growth, with the, you know, 10 years of significant growth, they were all making a lot of money. So. And, and this falls into that, you know, I mentioned earlier how uh, the compensation policies seemed um, off because of the company had grown so much. This is part of that problem, too. You know, there was just no no one ever suggested review of policies of compensation. Are, are we you know, are we where the market is on this? You know, they they were just uh I, I think that as good stewards of the company, someone should have been suggesting review and, and revision of policies and compensation plans um, because they seem to be out of whack. I think this is a very good point. And a question that we uh, think of often is, uh, do you love the work or do you love the money? And this really comes back to that. And one way that we are at Red Eye are working with this uh, in the from an analyst perspective and an investor perspective, working with corporate governance, that is that we have a checklist and then we have divided into three categories. So it's business people and financials. And the people aspect is what we are mostly touching upon here. And for example, as you mentioned, if the board's refreshment rate is very low, we will give a lower rating to that because there are the same people and they're not getting any new blood into the, into the boardroom. And then another point of that is, uh, of course, remuneration. How much are they paid? And how is that relative to other companies? So I think uh, that could be one way to to assess that. Yes, no one was having those conversations at Tyco. I can tell you, <laughs> <laughs> no analysts covering it either. I guess. Well, well, correct. Yes, you know, you you look at uh, how many people missed it. Yeah, I mean, it's it. There should have been red flags that somebody caught along the way. Uh, you know, well, there were a couple, there, there were a couple people who spoke up and, and thought that, you know, some of their accounting was a little off. Some, some short you know, sellers, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that's really about it. You know, the SEC investigated them a couple of times. Um, they'd never come up with anything material. So, you know, PwC audits, you know, so it's, uh, you know, from an investor's perspective, you say, how, how would I know this is about to happen? You know, how would I know? 
Exactly, and I mean we have been uh, speaking about Enron and other scandals as well following the dot-com bubble, um, and I mean there have been n- uh, numerous new frauds as well, like Wirecard, and, and most recently it seems like FTX. And as a professor of business ethics, if you could wave your magic wand and change one thing in the corporate world to protect shareholders and the society, what would that be? Oh gosh, that's a that's. That's an interesting question. I've never had a magic wand. Um, you know, I hate, I, I really am reluctant to suggest uh, government oversight regulations I, because I know there are so many and I know they're expensive for uh, corporations. Um, but I, I would probably start there. You know, I, well, I would change the whole audit structure. Honestly, that's where I would start. Um, I think there's such, and this played out, I think in, in all of these cases, to some degree, you hire a, a CPA firm, you're required to, you know, go through the steps of an independent audit. I think that is a stretch calling it independent. Because the company hires these firms, they pay them tens of millions of dollars annually for their services. Um, And then the firms are supposed to come in and say, oh, hey, we think you're, this is off or this is wrong. And what's the instinct then of the company? Well, we're never going to hire them again. You know, like it that there's such an inherent conflict there. Um, and we can look back. We can look back at those big scandals and see that the accounting profession failed us in those cases. You know, they they should like, certainly Enron, WorldCom. They sh- there were things that should have been caught that were not. Um, and, and for Enron, by- even the, the, the firm actually got, uh, I mean, Killed got, by that. Right, exactly. <laughs> yes, they, so, yeah, they, that, yeah, Arthur, Arthur Anderson paid the ultimate price on uh, for that. Yeah. But, you know, you look at this and, and you think um, maybe the whole independent audit um, scheme should be set up differently, where it, it it is a government agency or a quasi-government agency or, you know, certainly it's not the, uh, the firm that you are hiring doesn't get paid by the company that they're then trying to determine if if things are are good or bad. You know, they want to keep the business. That's the, you know, that's the problem there. So yeah, I would probably start there. I just think based on uh, what happened and, you know, the number of companies that um, have released clearly extremely fraudulent information, even after it's been audited, um, is, you know, show that there's a problem with that system, you know, and, and, and I still have great respect for, um, accountants, accounting firms. Um, I am, I'm in the accounting department here at my university. So I, you know, we, uh, I, very much respect the accounting profession, but I do think that there is a, a lot of risk in the current setup here in the U.S. for for independent audits. I, you know, I also would consider expanding the scope of audits. 
you know, beyond just the, the limited financial information, um, maybe have them delve deeper in, you know, have access to the information like I had when I was writing this book, you know, that they, they might be the ones who should have access to everything and we can use them to, uh, to review everything for us. That's probably, that's probably where I start with my magic wand. Yeah. It makes me think of the credit rating agencies and the 2008 uh, crisis that was kind of related in that, in that sense. Yes. Yes. And there's a German proverb whose bread I eat, his song I sing, which right. fits quite <laughs> <That's> nicely. <laughs> that is correct. That's exactly what I'm saying. That is that is correct. Uh, that's it. You know. And to, and to wrap up the Tycho story, uh, have you stayed in touch with Dennis Koslovsky since the book was published in uh, 2014? And where is he today? He, I, I have. I do he- hear from him or keep up with him occasionally. Um, He's he lives, I believe, right now in Nantucket, I think Um, he remarried since he got out of prison. Uh, And um, I think he spends a lot of time with his wife and he's got two daughters and they have children. So I think that's where he he concentrates his time. I think he does some consulting very quietly. (laughs) And um, and I think that. Quite honestly, one thing I will say about him personally is that he's certainly resilient, both when I met him in prison and and since he's gotten out. You know, he certainly never let it. um, Of course, I didn't know him before, so it's hard. I can't really compare to who he was before he went to prison. But in prison, um, you know, I don't know how I would be or I hope I never (laughs) know how I would be in prison. But, you know, he. he was always upbeat and hopeful. And um, I mean, he was in prison for eight and a third years in a hardcore state prison, which is not an easy place to be. Um, and uh, he has really, and, and since he's been out, he seems um, to have just put it behind him, which, you know, I, I know that that's not always the case, but um, yeah, he seems, he seems good. And as I have talked to people about taking down the lie in your book, I mean, ahead of this recording, several have said that it sounds like a really great movie. And and I agree, it would be. Uh, Has that ever been on the table? (laughs) I agree. I just don't know how to make that happen. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some of our listeners. uh, Yeah, maybe someone can uh, fill me in. I do, I agree. And, you know, and I've seen some of the other, uh, you know, films that have been made, you know, about the, Theranos and about Madoff and, you know, they, they are, and this is such, it's such an interesting story. Just the business stuff, the personal stuff, like, I mean, things that have always struck me as uh, so interesting is like, how do you go from making $150 million a year and living the most luxurious life that you could imagine to in a very short amount of time, living in a awful state prison with violent offenders. I just don't even know how you make that shift psychologically. You know, I don't know. I just think those things are, are fascinating. You know, I think that's, uh, so yeah, I think that, um, I think it would be a great movie. I, I, I wish I knew how to, how to make that happen here in Cincinnati. I don't have a lot of, uh, Hollywood ties or anything. So 
perhaps Bethany McLean has some contacts after smartest guys in the room. Maybe, maybe so. I, you know, I spoke to her a couple of times when I was writing the book. She was helpful for me. Yeah. That's good. And, and also in the book, you, you state that writing, it was the most all consuming project you've ever undertaken. So we have to ask if you're considering writing any other book. I, I would love to write another book. I, uh, I just haven't, in order to, to invest the time and energy that it takes to put that together, uh, you have to really be interested in the story. You know, it has to be something that really draws you in. I just haven't found, haven't found that next story yet. I'm, I'm on the lookout for it. So I, uh, you know, I hope to get into that. I've actually, um, been for the past four years here at my university, been working in a, an administrative role chairing my department so that that kind of has take me away from the things that I love to do but I, I finished that and I'm uh, I'm back ready to ready to do some writing again so hopefully I'll uh, I'll land on something that uh, is just as interesting I really feel like I should write another book just because the learning curve was so big on the first one that I you know should take advantage of it well next year will be the 10 year anniversary from the last book so that could be Could be yeah, one that's reason. A good, that's a good, uh, yeah, motivator, right? Yes, I've recovered maybe since then. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I honestly, rookie mistake. I, I agreed to a, a very, very short deadline on the first, first one. So I, I was really uh, in a crunch to, to get it wrapped up. So, you know, that, that's when you learn the most. But that, that's right. Yes. And for those who want to learn more about what to avoid and and also what to look for when it comes to corporate governance. Uh, do you have some other book recommendations? Well, th the one that's on my list, ready to be read, is um, it's called Madoff Talks by a guy named Jim Campbell. I, I don't know if you've read that. I haven't read it yet, but I that's the next one on my list. I think it's going to be uh, very good. So that's the that's the one uh, I, I'm looking at next. So laying on my nightstand, waiting for me. So. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for that recommendation. And, and thank you also for a very interesting conversation about uh, you and, and your book, Taking Down the Lion, which we really recommend everyone to buy and review. Do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? No, no. I, I just appreciate so much talking about the book. I love talking about it. I uh, uh, I think it's a, a incredibly interesting story. And, you know, I went into this whole thing just trying to figure out what we can learn from from it that that's my perspective in that I'm I'm talking to students every day so that's uh that's how I approached it and and I found there was a lot to learn there a lot great and and lastly where can our audience follow you and and your work uh you can follow me I am on um Instagram you can follow me on um There's, I have a website for the book, Taking Down the Lion. You can find it there. I think if you just Google Taking Down the Lion, you you will find me. I, and I'm at Northern Kentucky University, so you can always find me there as well. Perfect. I hope to pay a visit sometime. Yes, I hope we're you going do too. To, we're going to Omaha this year, so at least oh. we're going to the U.S. So. Oh, are you going to go see Warren Buffett? Yes. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. Yeah, good. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by RedEye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at RedEye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. 
Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.